A Mormon Stories is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. To support this podcast, please donate today at GayMormonStories.org. All donations go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer Mormons. And thanks for listening. And my parents basically showed up at my home. And during that time, I was it's when I began to show um, signs of bipolarism, as it were. And I, within like a two month period of time, racketed up about $25,000 in consumer debt. It's a great form of escapism. So you had sort of a manic episode? You had a, you, you, were you diagnosed with bipolar? Eventually, yes, I would be. You know, when you're in that very terrible place, that particular valley of the shadow, wherein you have these two parts that are a deeply inherent part of who you are. Both of them are foundational aspects of your identity, your sense of self. And by those, I mean, for me, my Mormonism and then being LGBT and not knowing how to reconcile the two, wanting, deeply desiring companionship and yet feeling that that isn't something you can have in your life. And so I just started becoming more and more depressed. I wouldn't say abusing clonazepam because I've always been terrified of the potentialities of doing so. So if anything, I would cut down, like I would cut down the dosages and stuff. So either sleeping or going shopping because retail, it's, you know, some of us jokingly call it retail therapy. You know, you just, it's a lot easier to forget your troubles when you're sort of in this hemi-mania of not really being fully in touch with reality insofar as saying, mm, I'm going to have to repay all of this. And so, you know what I mean? But really just wanting to forget what's happening to you. Um, so it became an escape for you that became unhealthy because you were getting big debt. Oh, absolutely. And my parents somehow, as parents will do, got wind of the way that I was struggling as far as both with work and with all of these other things and came to my home. And this is part of like, this bespeaks not only their great compassion and kindness towards me, but also it's part of Latino culture as well. Like multi-generational households are the norm more than the exception. Right. And in, in our countries, really, like you don't move out until you're going to get married, yeah. you know? I'm familiar with that. <laughs> so they, they came, you know, and, and to my home at that time and basically said, okay, we, wanna, we want you to come live with us. We want, you to, we want to help you get better. So they were already in Utah, but you just weren't living with them yet. Right, right, yeah. And, and so I went to live with them and thus began a three-year odyssey of what I call the dark night of the soul. And what do I mean by that? It was like I finally, because throughout my 20s and throughout all of this process, I was just, in, I personally was in survival mode. So my family and I have lived in over 24 different houses and apartments, you know, in the process of displacement and then trying to establish ourselves and so on, right? right? When when we finally stayed in one place long enough, which was in the Inland Empire for 14 years, it's as if we as a family stopped running, but I never stopped running. So as soon as I turned 17, I left for the South and, and went to work in the South, then came back to California. Okay, we didn't hear this part. So you So you actually left home at 17, and took off to the southern, southeast United States on your own. Yeah. 
to work for an environmental services company removing environmental hazards like asbestos, lead, fiberglass. It's really funny because the spectrum of jobs that I've had, I mean, like I've edited, I've worked editing children's films, but I've also worked with crowbars taller than me, gutting houses from the inside out. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's Zena talking. Yeah, well, or I've worked for the Department of Social Services in California, but, you know, I've also worked building fences. I've worked doing Unix and Linux operating system maintenance, but I've also worked doing janitorial work. You know what I mean? Like, there's <laughs> a pretty broad and nonsens nonsensical spectrum all associated with me trying to find myself and trying to find happiness and stability. And so what would happen quite often is... I would, since the age of 17, until about 23, I, I, I kept running for myself and from our family problems. And the way that I would do that is just by moving, doing a stint out of state somewhere, and then coming back. But then I couldn't live at home. Things were still hard there. So I would move somewhere else and go live somewhere else, blah, blah, blah. It was a repeating pattern. And it's going to sound funny, but literally the hardest thing, hardest thing I did until that point in my life, which was around the age of 21 or 20, more like 21 or 22, was stay in one place long enough to finish my associate's degree, you know? Okay. And um, anyway, so when I came to BYU, I stopped running physically in the sense of I learned to stay in one place, but I continued to run for myself in other ways by engaging in escapist behaviors, primarily having to do with those things like shopping or taking a clonazepam to pass out and not have to think about all these really difficult things that I was dealing with, you know? Right. And I, I remember, for example, I mean, just being so heartbroken one day and my roommates in the other part of the house, I happened to have kind of like my own mini mini home, as it were, that connected to the main part of the house, formerly a polygamous house, incidentally, really okay. interesting. So it was like fragmented into different pieces and part of, and had like the underground tunnels that would connect to other houses and stuff. Anyway, um, I remember, you know, them singing uh, and singing a hymn in, in their beautiful three-part harmony. And... I just feeling so heartbroken and, and wanting so much to just the heartbreak of, I think, my academic failures, as well as my inability to fit completely, as well as this growing, growing desire to be, I'm kind of, I guess, kind of late bloomer as well, to, ha to have real companionship, not just to go and have these superficial relationships where I would dissociate and have almost out-of-body experiences, you know, like, but actually really be able to be present. And, uh, like, to give you one example, you know, one, one guy that I dated, we dated during the summer, and it was really fun, super fun. We were both film in the film program. We both were start decided, for example, to collect vinyl records, and we would, like, drive all over the state and every thrift store we could find to find, like, you know, so it was really fun, but... Yeah, you were connecting. Yeah, yeah, sure, but always in our physical interactions. And this, I had had this same experience with the guy I almost married, and all kinds of where I would, it's, it's almost a form of disembodiment where you disassociate. And, and so for example, you know, he was kissing me good night in his car, dropping me off, you know, at home. And, and he was really, you could tell really into it. And there was a song on the radio and I, the whole time I, I would step out of that 
and of any kind of like physical intimacy, moments of physical intimacy. And I was listening to the, so I was listening to the song and thinking, this is a U2 song, clearly. However, I think, I'm pretty sure it's like a tribute band or a cover because mm-hmm. the guy really doesn't sound like Bono at all. And and the whole time, you know, my, my boyfriend at the time was, you know, was really like, I guess passionate and kissing me and good night and and so on. And it wasn't passionate at all. Well, when he was done, I blurted out without thinking, "Hey, right? So like the guy that's singing the song is totally not Bono. I mean, am I right or what? Like I and, and he just had this look in his face, like, oh, are you paying attention to what we're doing? Right, exactly. He was like, oh, kind of sad, and I was like, crap, I shouldn't have said uh. anything, you know. Um, now the reason why I say why I feel like at least for me, my second is somewhat fluid and why I retain that 25% of myself that I feel can be attracted to men is because the last guy that I dated, he was so tender and so gentle with me that I could be present with him. And while I never loved him the way that he loved me, we we fit well together in, in, that, in that physical way. And, and it was very tender and beautiful. You know what I mean? And yeah. so, and, and also, I mean, I... And, reluctant to be sort of limited or walled in by I, I don't really like the taxonomies that we put on each other in terms of sexuality I almost part of me started using the word queer just like you know what I mean not be because queer lets you be more open to a wide variety of definitions it doesn't it's not so limiting it's precisely as as the taxonomies that we use within that that acronym right lgbtqia right. and so on um, okay. and so but we left you we kind of missed out you were started out your dark deep tunnel of those three years and yeah so what ended up happening is throughout my 20s i had basically been on survival mode what do i mean by that my father and I both are inheritors of depression and anxiety. And for me, sometimes that would mean taking medication, other times not, and just trying to survive without it. I'm surprised that I did. But essentially what it would mean, in particular, once I came out to BYU, is I would have some kind of like minor to medium-sized crisis towards the end of a semester or during a semester. But I would somehow get it together or like plow through it and then just keep going without addressing these foundational issues of what was happening inside of me, you know, Um, without thinking about it too much, trying to escape either by keeping busy or shopping or doing X, Y, or Z, right? And so when I went to live with my parents, I finally had the luxury. I quit this job, you know, hemi prestigious job as it were and I, I at least for me i was making good money and so on the most that i had ever earned and had a great deal of potential within the company and so on but i quit i quit that job and i, I for the first time i had the luxury of having the breakdown that i had been running from so first i went through almost like a hemi detox where we got me off of clonazepam, which again, I wasn't abusing in the legal sense yeah. um, because I actually had started dozing down and cutting down on the dosages. Like I just yeah. didn't want, like I didn't even, I didn't want to be dependent on anything and had always been very prideful in that respect, you know? Right. But basically to get me off of it, like through two weeks of hell in terms of withdrawals, 
No, it's hard to come off. I, I see people go through that. Right. Yeah. You know, like the nausea, an inability to sleep, chest pains, all kinds of stuff, right? And all the anxiety is amplified. As amplified, yes, many times over. It, for me, manifests itself to manifest itself in the form of chest pains. So got off clonazepam, but was still, of course, the depression anxiety doesn't go away, nor do the signifiers of then what was what would eventually become a formalized diagnosis of bipolarism. And I've made a very conscious decision to be completely open publicly about my struggles um, with achieving wellness in terms of uh, mentally, because it, one of the things that I hope is that any and all stigma surrounding that will be completely done away with so that people, when they need help, whether when they are at a point of clinical depression or clinical anxiety where, where it just is interfering with your ability to function will be unafraid to get help. And I feel like that stigma persists within Mormon culture. There's a huge stigma and it's so common. Uh, it, it is in the broader culture and cultural context. Well, even though we think of ourselves as being somewhat more evolved from the more, you know, uneducated, I suppose, as like, approaches like pick yourself up by your bootstraps or you know it's in your head just think positively now that we in particular through bio uh, understand the biophysiological and neurological mechanisms in very irrefutable and empirical ways through which these different if you want to call it thorn in the side or whatever afflictions work you know and why it is that sometimes clinical interventions are necessary yeah you just can't pull yourself out of it it's in medical it's It's a neurological it's in your brain it's in your genes i mean there's a lot of factors going into it and you can't just say it's a character absolutely because it's absolutely and so when i would go because i started going to the student health center before dropping out of byu i would see these kids that were like so ashamed like they couldn't even make eye contact for being there clearly. And I would just like, I would make a point of being like super like smile back and Hey, how's it going? What's up? You know? And, uh, and the same eventually in this three year process, I participated in what's called the wellness and recovery clinic in Provo, which is through like Wasatch mental health. And it was the same thing in the clinic. People just would all look at the floor, look down on the floor and just really look like I'm so ashamed that I need help right now. And, I would just make a point of if they wanted to and looked comfortable, like making eye contact, smiling, and just being nonchalant. You know what I mean? Like, hey, how's it going? Right. What's up? Hey, right on. Cool. Yeah, it's kind of cold outside, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and with people, whenever I can tell that someone is struggling and is not getting help um, and that there's an element or aspect of secrecy or shame associated with that, like I'll make a point of being open about myself and my own struggle and journey so that they can then feel open about or feel comfortable opening up, which often ends up happening, you know? So even when you were sick, your empathy, you you always had that empathy, even when you were at your lowest. And so I'm impressed by that. I, I think that, that talks about you, you know, but... that That's really kind, but honestly, it's something that is an inheritance of my parents. It's something that they endowed me with, and it's something that they should be credited with, because growing up, all through growing up, for example... Rarely a week or a day would go by where my mom wasn't on the phone or with someone in crisis. And and with my father, our political dialogue, like we were raised up to feel a sense of responsibility yeah. for 
our surroundings for others and yeah. so on. And that's kind of like my mother. She suffered from bipolar too, but she was the person everyone came to cry on. And so I kind of, I also have that beautiful memory of my mother that's similar to what you have of your mother. And at least for me, been a great blessing in, in, in the sense, along with being gay, which I consider a gift and not a trial, um, in the sense that you're able to be a safe space for others. And I've had people confess all kinds of things to me, and they know that I'm not going to judge them in any way, shape, or form. Right. You know what I mean? And that's when it, that's the highest compliment that anyone can pay to me, I feel like, is when they confide in me and know and understand that I'm going to honor that confidence and not judge them in any way. And hopefully in some way, help them to find hope and help, get help and, and so on, you know. What ended up happening in this three-year process, this dark night of the soul, if you want to put it that way, um, is that I began, I no longer had the imperative of mere survival. And because of that, I began to finally confront these portions of of myself, um, both in terms of my sexuality, of the traumas that we as a family had inherited now that my mother and father's marriage was had healed in very important ways and my father was undergoing and had undergone much of his own healing process and so i felt like i no longer needed to necessarily co-parent with my mom for example as i had done when i was an adolescent i felt like i finally had the luxury and i no, i no longer felt like i have to be the example or something you know <laughs> in matters spiritual and otherwise and so I allowed myself to descend into the inferno, as it were, you know. For three years, I mean, both I participated in, in the wellness and recovery clinic, but also not making a lot of progress. I started addressing this thing, this new thing that was entirely new to me, this phenomenon of bipolarism. I started dealing with and trying to work through my depression, anxiety, but still was not out, I was still very much closeted. And then perhaps about almost a year ago, not quite, I decided, okay, something ha- either something has to change or I'm going to kill myself, you know? Because at that point, I had become practically a shut-in, rarely leaving the house, getting out of bed, and so on. I mean, the depression was so strong and so overwhelming that even with med- medical interventions and so on, I just stronger than me. So you were getting psychiatric treatment this whole time. You were getting medication trials. On and off, yes. And, you know, at that point, I was just in so much pain that I decided either either something must change or I will find a way to kill myself and do it in a way that will seem completely accidental. Like I was very meticulous, Uh had very meticulously planned it out so that it would be like a fall from a hike and... And, I, and I'd start oh. keeping a journal about how happy I was and how much I love nature and, you know what I mean? So that there would be evidence that there was nothing absolutely wrong and that it wasn't a suicide. You know what I mean? Just so that it wouldn't add, like, yeah. there wouldn't be an additional burden of pain or sorrow for my family. So even in that, you were concerned. Right. For I, well, others. I was more worried. I, I didn't, I wasn't necessarily concerned for the welfare of my soul. I feel at that point I had... I felt like I knew and understood God enough that he he knew and understood, knows and understands the sorrows of those who take their lives, who who feel at such an impasse or to are experiencing such a degree of pain that I don't I don't believe like in a 
you know, a lake of fire and brimstone necessarily for those who just want the pain to stop. You know what I mean? And so I, I wasn't concerned about that, but I, I did very much want, because my family and I, because of all that we have survived, we are in important ways. We have the ability to affect each other and we're the beginning and the end of each other. And I, I didn't want to add to any kind of burden that they would have. You know what I mean? And, and so I had already like started a very meticulous plan for how I would die unless something changed. So what really pulled you out of that three-year slump? I mean, that's a long time to be in a slump. And so... It really is. Um, and it was, again you know, that realization that something had to change, right? Or if it wasn't going to, then I was going to take, you know, to take my life. And I think it's at that point that this greater power, however you want to define that for yourself, I think came in and and brought all of these different forces into my life in the form of a variety of elements, people, organizations, projects. And so... I'll do my best to um, identify each one. So one of the things that happened is right around this time, USGA began to receive more attention. USGA, again, being the LGBT club on BYU campus. Mm -hmm. And uh, because of the It Gets Better video series that Kendall Wilcox helped them to produce. And so the first thing... I decided to go to one of those meetings and it was Carol Lynn Pearson and she was talking about basically the hero's journey, which eventually would become a a small book that she has recently published for the gay LDS individual. So that was kind of cool. I, I hadn't yet, I wasn't yet ready to be completely open about myself, but, and the other thing too, that made me very reticent other than not wanting to, hurt my family, as it were, in terms of coming out, was that there are aspects or things within the LGBT community that I, didn't resonate with me. And so I I thought, well, if this is what it means to be gay, then I, I am not that, and I, I don't want to be that, you know? But other things started happening. Um, I reconnected with Kendall Wilcox, who I had met eight years ago in the film program at BYU, and, you know, very, uh, very passing um, uh, conversations, that sort of thing. And, and I just uh, basically started interrogating him in the best way possible. Like, let's go eat a burrito and let me ask you what you think about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and he was very kind and, and really great. And by interrogating, I don't mean an antagonistic way, but rather asking, well, how can somebody who has, you know, without being open about who I was, um, you know, these these propensities or attractions possibly like reconcile that to to God or even to remaining LDS or any of those things. Um, and then that eventually became I want to help with the Far Between project that I've what I've seen so far, I've been impressed with and which eventually materialized into me helping to edit the videos which are now being posted on the site and contributing to the blog from time to time which is because far between is yes will eventually be a feature-length film but right now it's really one of the only sources that is giving a voice to all of the alternative lds lgbt stories not just those that are found 
and Voices of Hope, which is for prim primarily tells the stories of those who enter into mixed orientation marriages or who choose to live a life of celibacy or uh, mormonsandgays.org, which does the same in terms of highlighting only those stories. Whereas within, within the scope of the Far Between project, you know, there's everything, transgender Mormons, Mormons whose mixed orientation marriages have failed, um, every kind of story. It's, it's much broader and much more inclusive, you know, so that's yes. why I felt good about it. It's a great it. project. I mean, he's doing a really high quality job there, and I, I hope it gets more attention. Oh, absolutely. And I, one of the things that really helped me to begin to feel peace uh, with myself and uh, was that I, in the process of helping to edit interviews to post to the site, you know, was privy to and had access to, he's done over a hundred, you know, it's quite, quite an expansive work. Um, and as I was listening to the stories of other LDS LGBT people, I came to first of all, like feel much less isolated, but I also had a sense of peace come over me, like essentially a feeling of this is a journey in which I am not alone and which I think I can find the courage to embark on. So that was one thing was Kendall and the Far Between Project was deeply helpful. And, and he's one of my good and closest friends now um, as we navigate this journey together. And, and he told me the best thing that I ever heard in, in this process, which is simply trust yourself and listen to what resonates with you, you know, and, and that's what I have tried to do since. And it has been a very good experience or approach for me. The other thing that happened is right around that time. So at the cusp of this disrepair <laughs> of three years, yeah. my friend got back from her mission in Temple Square. And she, it's really funny because again, our acquaintance beforehand was very passing, you know, through a mutual friend. But she came back with a degree of frustration, understandably, about some of the correlated practices. And for example, you know, the sister missionaries were discouraged from necessarily interacting with uh, some of the homeless persons around Temple Square for extended period of time or taking them food. And she would do that, <laughs> you know? She broke that rule. Absolutely. And she became very good friends with one homeless gentleman who eventually completely turned his life around and is one of her closest friends now. And she would take him her food. And <laughs> um, she actually told me a couple of times that she took the little white Bible, which is the missionary handbook of instructions and just like what, what would be so would feel so frustrated that she would, she just like chucked it over the the like the walls of like the temple square <laughs> that enclosed him. So anyway, she got back. So you can imagine this very wonderful, intelligent, feisty person who yeah. was very thoughtful about her faith practice. And basically it was like the only way that I'm personally going to be able to complete my studies at BYU and retain some degree of sanity is by starting a discussion group with like-minded people. And by like-minded, meaning those who struggle with certain uh, cultural expressions of the faith, both in, insofar as the institutional church is concerned, as well as the BYU culture and environment, and trying to just navigate our questions together and to decide and figure out how, if at all, we can reclaim Mormonism for ourselves, uh, remain within the church and so on. And, you know, whether it was by examining and asking the hard questions about church history or patriarchy and feminism, 
and feeling disenfranchised or um, homosexuality and, and Mormonism and how they interact or intersect rather and how it's kind of unsustainable for many people. And so each each time that we would meet, it would be a specific topic and we would come you know, with our thoughts, sometimes like readings that we would complete before. And and we had some really wonderful people come and speak to us as well, like Dr. Valerie Hudson, Jared Anderson. And it basically became our own little heterodox group of people, of friends, of close friends, uh, navigating this journey, both of not just trying to survive the BYU experience, but also trying to figure out and work out and wrestle with in those very you know, difficult ways. And these were people who just found each other. It wasn't like, you know, like something like Mormon stories where it wasn't an existing sort of... Right, there was no pre... Yeah, it was basically people who knew each other from one way or one thing or another. Uh Yeah, and then we set up... I mean, it became... At first, it was called Alternative Sunday School, but then we were worried people would misinterpret that as like, oh, they're starting their own church, which wasn't at all the case. If anything, we were trying to figure out how to work within the structure, you know? And so we changed it to Sunday Best. And what ended up happening is it blew up into like this thing where just large amounts of people were showing up each time. And it stopped being an intimate sort of discussion group. And so it eventually kind of, because of that, like we kind of allowed it to fizzle out because it no longer necessarily served the purpose that it had done so at the beginning. But in speaking in later uh, months and so on with with this particular friend who also helped to co-fund the Student Review, which is the independent paper on BYU campus, just kind of a powerhouse. But anyway, you know, we said it's even though we don't necessarily see each other quite so often and so on, we've cre- we really created something special insofar as our friendships and interactions. And it's something all of us needed at that time. Yeah. And many of the participants in this group have gone on to graduate or other things, but we remain connected in our pursuits, practices, insofar as um, heterodoxy and how we we each individually have figured out how to navigate or interface and interact with our faith, as it were. And we came to the conclusion that it was at that time, it was exactly what each of us needed, you know. And yeah. it really, for me, it was, it helped me to wrestle with the very difficult questions that you have to confront if you are an LGBT person within the structure and cosmology of the LDS faith, you know, that really hard wrestling that you have to do to figure out how you can create something that is sustainable for you, you know, um, and what that is exactly, what, what it is that resonates with you. So, okay, so Sunday Best was one far between. And then I happened out of the blue to also reconnect with a friend that I hadn't seen for quite a few years and she had decided she said I just well, I one day I just got this impression that I want to do some writing with Berta you know and I also had gotten that feeling like I need to call his friend and try and reconnect and I think that she would be a good co-author for uh, different things uh-huh. and um and so we got in touch with each other and she ended up being my sort of like my touchstone Every fear and trepidation, and I had many because when you have certain intellectual capacities and that is doubled with generalized anxiety, you come up with really creative reasons to be worried about everything. Right. And so, <laughs> so I had all kinds of hang-ups about not just the coming out process, but how 
how to be able to live an authentic life as an LGBT person while not stripping myself of my genetic identity as a Mormon, you know? And plus all the myths about all of it, right? About being gay or being a lesbian or being bisexual. and Absolutely. And I mean, and we had so many talks well into the night and she was such a consummately good listener and had always such excellent feedback knew just the right things to say to put me at ease and then the other thing that happened is right around the time another friend a, another couple of friends decided to organize what is called the po- the Provo Peace Forum which is basically designed under the umbrella of the Empathy First initiative which is something that Kendall started as well to help improve conversations around difficult issues uh-huh. within given communities that have traditionally been at odds with each other. So this was going on spring of 2012. Is that the time scale? Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. Yes. And the three panels that have been held thus far have all uh, looked at the experience of being LDS and LGBT or the intersection between Mormonism and homosexuality and all the variegated expressions that that can take. Uh-huh. Um, and so I went to the first one and it was, it, you know, these have been held at the Provo Library in one of their large conference rooms, packed, right? Like no room for anyone. But the things that were expressed, um, all of these have had, so they're moderated by Kendall, who is very gifted as far as diplomatically having or establishing and helping to facilitate empathy-based conversations rather than those which are inherently antagonistic. Yeah, he does have from, a good skill at that. Uh-huh, from a variety of viewpoints and perspectives, making it a safe space to share your live experiences and to ask questions and so on. And so he has facilitated those. And then for each one, there has been Dr. Bill Bradshaw has participated, uh, as well as Dr. David Knowlton, who is in... in specializes in a lot of anthropo like the anthropological approach to the LDS church basically as like panel expert but but largely it was they're just there as backup largely it's designed to be a commun- uh, conversation between everyone there you know and I went and I just this there was a lightness there I I don't know how to explain it but there was a mm, something transcendent, something, uh, not just a spirit of loving and inclusion consciously created by the persons attending from a variety of paths and walks, uh, whether it was ecclesiastical leaders or straight allies or not sure, quite sure allies <laughs> or, or parents with questions um, or family, loved ones of LGBT persons or LGBT persons themselves. But there's something else there. It, it was a sort of transcendent, peaceful spirit. And so it's it, the combination of these things, right, of participating or tr- helping with Far Between, my friendship with Kendall, my friendship with this other best friend friend that I reconnected with, uh, Sunday Best, and then the Provo Peace Forum, all of these, and, and it became an amalgamation of things that very gently helped me to, number one, accept and, and love myself, and slowly and gently come out of the closet, as it were. Right. Um, so those co- things that came together right all at once in Utah Valley just impacted you personally and must have impacted a lot of people. I mean, this was, a, this was kind of a revolution of sense, oh, all absolutely. these events and going on. and There's and there's, I know, there are a couple of other people that were participants in um, the multiplicity of these things, among others, you know. And I know that for them, it was 
pretty vital as well. And what finally cemented it for me insofar as self-acceptance and self-love and so on was one night just after attending the first Pro Peace Forum, I decided to have a conversation with my mom, you know, where she came in and she was like, because I, I was still dealing a little bit with the depression and the anxiety and so on. And she came in and she was like, Miha, we have to do something, you know. And, you know, I don't if you are willing to go to therapy or and, and I said, Mom, you know, do you remember how in high school you asked me if I was attracted to women and I... I started crying and said yes, and then you gave me a talk by Elder Oaks, and that was the end of it, and we've never really talked about it since. And, and she, she was like, I, I don't remember that, Miha, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said, um, okay, well, that, that never went away. And, and it's something that has been a burden for me, a great source of isolation, loneliness, and sorrow and depression for over these over these 15 years since that initial conversation and she said initially she said you know you Miha, you are thinking that because you are depressed um do you want to go to acupuncture you know <laughs> which um which made us <laughs> care for being gay right? <laughs> uh, uh, oh it was the most awesome it just makes me laugh to this day um because i know it was so it was coming from such a loving and well-intended place but at the same time it was so not what i needed at that time but I, I appreciate, I'm able to appreciate that I know that she loves me and really just from the bottomless part of her heart wanted me to be happy and didn't necessarily see living life as in an affirming LGBT way as conducive to that. Right. I can understand that it's frightening for parents. I mean, you have this preconceived narrative for your child, right? They're going to get married in the temple and have... 15 babies and, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, but suddenly all bets are off in that respect, right? So anyway, that conversation left me feeling sad, a little bit despondent. I, you know, I was hoping for maybe a little bit more support, but I, at the same time, I understand why that wasn't necessarily possible. And and so a couple of days later, the next forum, the, the next Pro Peace Forum was announced and I invited her to attend. She was, I went into her room. I still remember she was on her laptop and, um, you know, I just said, Hey mom, there's this thing called the prayer of peace forum that I've attended. The last one I went to the spirit there was just so beautiful. And it was, it was just a really wonderful experience. And it's just a way for all of us to come together and just listen to each other and understand one another a little bit better and come to a better understanding of the lived experiences of LDS LGBT people, their loved ones, and so on, in a way that is in an environment that is mutually empathetic and safe. And and, and at first she said, Miha, I don't need a support group. <laughs> <laughs> and uh and I and I said I, it's not it's not a support group mom it, it's again like just a, um, a place a community forum for conversation to help to improve our interactions and to create a more sustainable sort of conversation you know than to than what has traditionally happened within the scope of Mormonism and families with LGBT persons which has been 
tragic and in many respects, right? Like we no longer desire to speak with you or other things as well, even worse than that. Um, and so she said, I, you know, I'll think about it and just went back to her laptop and, and I, I left her room. The next week when it was going to be held, I believe my friend, this part, friend that I helped me to process so much and answer so many of the questions and trepidations or trepidation that I had came down for the Peace Forum, you know, to sort of sit with me and support me and so on. And that day, earlier that day, I texted my mom, I, I hope I will get to see you tonight. Um, and if that is impossible, I understand and I love you. And that was it. I didn't hear back. So I was a little bit late for the forum, but when I arrived, um, I saw my friend and she saved a seat for me. So I went and sat next to her. And after a couple of minutes of the panel a discussion going on, um, she turned to me and whispered, you know, your mom is here, right? <laughs> and I said, well, I, I, don't, I didn't see her anywhere. Uh, and she said, she's in the back. And I turned around and surely enough, there was this wonderful little Guatemalan woman sandwiched between two very large American men. <laughs> so I, that's why I had completely missed her. Um, and every now and then I would look back to see how, you know, if she was seemed to be doing okay. Um, and eventually looked back and saw that she was no longer there. So I thought, oh, you know, it's probably not something that she liked. And decided that she decided for that reason to bow out early. And I was a little bit sad about that. But we both had, you know fairly busy lives. By that time, I had begun to leave behind the corpse of my, <laughs> of my shut-in self, as it were, as I was beginning to find my voice. And so being involved in with different things and starting to help with interviews for Far Between and so on, I, I wasn't always home. She, she works and so on. So we didn't see each other for a couple of days, even though we, we lived in the same house. My sister at the time and her husband and, and baby were renting a studio apartment on our property. And she's one of my best friends and has become one of my biggest allies. And I'm really super grateful for her. Just kind of a bright light and deeply supportive and loving. And I, I spoke with her and I. she asked me, oh, how did the forum thing go? And I told so her. So your sister sort of knew the situation too. Yeah, absolutely. By that time, yeah. She was the first person that I think, well, after my mom that I spoke with. And sort of like the first very positive experience familiarly, as it were. Okay, your first uh, Positive coming out experience with a family member. Yeah, with yes, sister, yeah. precisely. And in in the sense that she just had expressed so much love and and said, yeah, I understand that, and I understand why how you would desire companionship and feel so isolated and alone. And I'm so sorry that you've gone through that. And you know, um, and just really kind and loving and so on. Anyway, and had genuine questions, you know, and was desiring to listen rather than to have or to make prescriptive dogmatic statements or anything, you know? Anyway, uh, I spoke with her and I was like, yeah, mom went, but she left early. So I don't, I don't think she really liked it. And she said, oh no, she told me about it. And she actually said that it was, she really liked it, but she had a meeting that she had to go to. And so with that in mind, a couple of days later, when I, I saw my mother, I, I approached her and said, you know, um, so your, so your sister and mother were talking about things a little yeah. bit among themselves. Okay. <laughs> and it's interesting because I, in a way, I kind of, I hate to say it, but I would use my sister to relay information to my mom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's a good strategy, actually. <laughs> <laughs> like, it just seemed easier, you yeah. know, um, and less maybe what we could say or call tense. Right. Um, and, and so 
I approached her a couple of days later with that in mind and that maybe she had liked it. And, you know, she said, basically said, asked me, you know, what, what I want to know is what does this mean for your relationship with Jesus and your testimony of the gospel, you know? And, and I said, well, number one, I've never stopped loving and admiring everything that Christ is and means like that's never changed. But also you should know that I, for the first time, by virtue of participating with these friends that you were worried I was starting a new church with (laughs) and attending these kinds of events that I've realized, I've come to realize that perhaps there is a place for me within the LDS faith tradition. And furthermore, and one thing that I didn't mention is in between the conversation with my mom in the next Pro of Peace Forum, you know, I was I was a little bit sad and I just decided to have a heartfelt prayer where I just asked God if I was acceptable bef- before Him as I was, as, as a gay person, if, if I could be worthy of good things and so on. And I've had metaphysical experiences with the other before, as it were, but none quite like this one in the sense that I was enveloped by, you could almost say a cocoon, <laughs> if you want to put it that way, just right. a, a sense, a very strong, not just a feeling, but a force of love, as it were, just love, love, love. And that external validation, affirmation, outside of myself, making its way into my personhood, as it were, as a whole, that is really what was the end of any questions for me, as far as my love of myself, my ability to feel that I was good inherently. And you did a Mormon thing. You asked God and he gave you an answer. Yes, I, I suppose. Yeah, sure. It was. I, I like to say sometimes I call it my <laughs> my um, sacred grove experience, if you will. Well, I think this um, is really important, and I, I want to really just draw attention to this because this is one thing that Carolyn Pearson talks about in her Heroes book, and um, that this experience is available. And we gay people have so much negativity into us that sometimes we're really blind to this voice but when if we really go to god god's voice is going to answer with love right and whatever that conception of love is it doesn't have to like fit at least in my perspective or view um it doesn't have to fit the the mormon paradigm of god if you want to call it the universe if you think of god as female i i think that there is just a greater power and that is possessed at it's very essence by love. And, you know, I understand, I completely, I, you know, I'm very fortunate in that I'm part of a new rising generation of LGBT LDS people that have not had the horrendous experiences that, let's say, were the case as homosexuality gained more visibility in society and suddenly, you know, LGBT members of the church were being told to participate in in reparative therapy, including electroshock right, therapy, or, therapy um, you know, being being thrown out of their homes being quite often, BYU, being, being told, yeah. uh-huh, kicked out of BYU, being disowned by family in the most, ter- you know, terrible ways, having 
just really hurtful things said to them, whether by ecclesiastical leaders or family. I never had that experience. And so for me, it was easy Err, I would say, to um, within that context of how I had been taught to pray, to do so, and to just receive that answer that came. You know, one of the phenomena that is happening with this new generation, as it were, is that more and more LDS LGBT persons are just taking it straight to God, as it were. Uh huh. Insofar as um, this is who I am, what I'm feeling, am I good and am I lovable as such or worthy of love as it were? And, you know, and, and most and for many, like when they stop praying to be fixed or changed and for many, it has been an odyssey, you know, of wearing their knees down in prayer, going on missions, promising to do all kinds of things if only they will be altered. But when that stops and instead they just ask, Am I okay as I am? And can I be loved? And am I worthy of all the good things and beautiful things life has to offer? Um, and am I acceptable before you? Then suddenly what appeared, at least for many of my friends, what seemed like the silent heavens, you know, hidden behind a pavilion, <laughs> are, as it were, becomes an experience of an a metaphysical transcendent experience of an outpouring of love and acceptance, which then is internalizes and a love and acceptance of, of the self, you know? Yes. And so for me, you know, as we were having this conversation about the panel that my mother had attended, um, the, the, the thing that I said finally was, and you should know that I've had the following experience. And that's where she began to tear up and, Instead of like the dogma of this is what I believe and that's not going to ever change, it was just, Miha, I don't understand everything, but I love you. And always there will be a place for you in our home, with our family, and and uh, and I love you. And that was it, you know. And it, it was just so completely different and just such a beautiful moment and experience for me. And I'm so grateful. And your personal witness, she was able to trust that you had really had that and that she respected it. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And just, I'm really grateful for my mom for being able to do that. And I have had other conversations um, since then, you know, where, you know, she has said, and also, so while not necessarily fully able, I think, to embrace the idea, let's say, if I do, if I end up, you know, marrying someone of the same gender as I, then, you know, I, I don't know that she at this point is necessarily ready to embrace that, but just that expression of love of saying always there will be a place for you in our home. And also always we will defend you. If, if, if like any family members or friends ever have anything to say, you know, mm -hmm. um, that in and of itself was just such a leap light years away from our initial conversation. And I'm so grateful for that. And I'm so grateful for my mother for doing that for me and um, or expressing as much, you know. And so, for example, recently, I had a friend who was going through a crisis medically, is, is gay and was get, coming out of a bad relationship and so on, and needed a place to stay, you know. And and so I, I spoke with my parents about her situation and so on. And my mom's like, yeah, come, come have her, have her stay here, you know, and uh -huh. here she will have a, a roof and shelter. And, you know, whereas 
previously it would have been like a gay in our home, <laughs> you know? Okay, so you... So there's been a definitive evolution, and I'm so grateful for that. I'm deeply grateful for that. And, I, yeah. you know, I, I understand and accept that things may or may not evolve beyond that point. But either way, like, I'm grateful that, A, they're willing to love and always per- have a place for me in their home. And, number two, that they are willing to extend that love to, to others um, who may be walking that same path as it were and stand up for me, you know, should they, should any, again, like family members or friends, um, have anything not positive to say. And so I'm, I'm again, really grateful for that. Um, I think they'll also come around further if, if that's where your life takes you, I think, yeah, it might be an adjustment when the, it involves, uh, you in a relationship, if that's what life brings you. But, they're gonna. They're gonna see that. They're gonna see that. And your mother obviously has shown that she's willing to see you and to see what you're doing. Thank you for joining us today on Gay Mormon Stories. To discuss this episode with others, please check us out at GayMormonStories.org. If you want to see this podcast continue, please consider making a monthly donation again at GayMormonStories.org. All donations go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer Mormons. Music for this podcast was graciously donated by Clayton Pixton. Check him out at claytonpixton.com.